Hey Artemis, are you interested in joining us as an ambassador? Check out our 2023 ambassador application, which is now open until March 13th. You can find it at artemis.nwf.org. And with that, enjoy the listen. Artemis endeavors to get more women in the field and on the water. To support women as leaders in the conservation movement. To ensure the vitality of our lands, waters, and wildlife. Artemis endeavors to change the face of conservation. Welcome to the Artemis Podcast. I am your host, Carly Kutnick, and my co-host today is Ashley Chance. Hi, Ashley. Hey, Carly. How are you doing? Not too bad. Thanks for joining us today um, with our guest, which is Heather Disney Dugan um, with Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Hi, Heather. Thanks for joining us on the Artemis Podcast. How are you? I'm well. It's good to hear from both of you. Uh, thanks, Ashley, and thanks, uh, Carly. Awesome. So one of our starters that we ask all of our guests is what's in your freezer. And so I'm curious what things you've been uh, pursuing and um, what's filling it. Well, um, let me preface everything by saying that I have three teenagers. So whatever is in the freezer gets removed very quickly. So right now I only have a little bit of deer left from last fall, but I will say that I'm excited about two other things in the freezer. Um, we grow our own tomatoes every year and then we make tomato sauce in the fall. And so we're stocked up until tomatoes ripen, um, this coming summer. And then we also harvest raspberries from our backyard. So I've got four gallon bags full of frozen raspberries that I need to do something with. So we'll be doing that, uh, sometime soon. Sounds delicious. I'm jealous. It sounds like <laughs> a pie is, pie is in store pie and jam and syrup, all sorts of stuff. Definitely. All right. Can you give us a little bit about who you are um, and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So right now, my current role is acting director of Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Um, I have worked for this agency for 31 years, so well over half of my life. And uh, until recently, I served as the uh, assistant director for field services for the agency. Um, I got my start actually as a temporary employee way back in 1987 as a boat assistant at Chatfield State Park. And once I was hired full-time in 1992, I became a ranger, worked at several different parks and worked my way up through the ranks to assistant region manager, um, region manager, and then in the merge between parks and wildlife in 2011, I was reassigned to the assistant director position. So I've seen lots of stuff and lots of changes over the years. I'm sure it sounds, it's impressive, quite an impressive career. Um, what's your, what was your favorite, I, I suppose, what was your favorite place to work um, as a ranger? Oh my gosh. So I, I would say there are two parks that really stand out for me, and it's because they're both parks that are firsts for me. So the first one, I will always have a soft spot in my heart for Chatfield, partly because um, when Chatfield was filling back in the 70s, my dad and I went fishing there at least a couple of times a week, and that was just down the road from our house. 
So it was basically my backyard growing up. And then when I started working there, I just have so many adventures that I could share or maybe not share, as the case may be, um, both as a seasonal employee and as a full-time ranger there. The other park that I would say is um, really dear to me is 11 Mile State Park. That's in South Park, just uh, about an hour west of Colorado Springs. And it is well known for its fishery. And um, it's also well known for being very, very cold in the winter. But that's the park that I was assigned to when I was um, first hired as a full-time ranger. And that was um, a big learning experience for a 23-year-old woman um, in a relatively remote area. I'm sure. It sounds like it. Let's delve into your um, role as a peace officer. So you said you were in for, or you've been a peace officer for 31 years and with the agency for 31 years. Um, how has how have things changed? How have the man how's the management and the enforcement of lands and wildlife changed over your tenure? You know, I think um, I, I would say that natural resources law enforcement or conservation law enforcement is in a category by itself to begin with. Um, you know, as a ranger and as a parks and wildlife officer, we really focus on being multi-purpose. So only a third of our given time in a year is really focused on law enforcement. And one thing that uh, when we have trainees come in every year, I like to remind them that Law enforcement is an important part of our agency, but we are a natural resources agency that uses law enforcement as a tool. Um, we really want to make sure that people understand um, the reason that we have um, wildlife and natural resource laws, and we really focus on trying to stand shoulder to shoulder with folks to help them to understand why, why we do what we do. Heather, I'm curious to hear what brought you into this way back in, like you said, 1987? I mean, the internet wasn't around. I imagine you didn't have a lot of um, examples of women in positions like the one that you took on. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, I remember graduating from high school in 1987 and thinking, well, okay, I'm going to go to CU Boulder. And I guess I'll just get a degree in education so that I can be a teacher. I just really didn't know what I wanted to do. And it's really funny because it was right in front of my face the whole time because, like I said, growing up, I spent so much time as an outdoors, free-range kid. Um, my mom and dad always took my brother and I camping. And, um, like I said, my, my dad and I were always fishing either – by Deckers or Chatfield or any place local, even just some little ponds near our house. You know, that's just what we did. So I don't know why it didn't occur to me until I, after I graduated, but I ended up getting a seasonal job, like I said, at Chatfield. And within a week, I was like, oh, here it is, Eureka, this is, this is what I'm going to do with my life. And so after a year, I, uh, changed my degree. Um, after a year, I transferred from CU to CSU and pursued my degree in wildlife biology. 
And after graduating, I knew that I wanted to work for the Division of Wildlife and be a district wildlife manager or be a park ranger for Colorado State Parks. And in 1992, it just happened to be state parks that was hiring. And so that's how I got my full-time start. Very neat. How many women were, uh, I guess, also went into the agency with you that year? I was the only one out of a class of five. And did that significantly increase in the next five or 10 years or what did that, what did that look like? Um, I'd say, so back in the early nineties, we only had 60 Rangers and seven of us were women. Um, we have significantly more officers today and I would for our um, parks officer or ranger ranks, roughly a third of us are women. So it has changed. Very neat. Um, what do you think the future looks like with that? So, so we've seen a significant progression in bringing women into the natural resources world. Um, do you, what does it look like five to 10 years in the future? You know, that's a good question. And I think it's more than just bringing more women in to be officers. I think some of the profound changes that we're gonna see as an agency have to do with changing attitudes toward conservation and wildlife management in the state. Um, specifically about, you know, in the, when I was a kid or when my dad was a kid, um, you know, there was very much a traditionalist way of thinking about wildlife populations and um, the relationship between humans and wildlife populations. And I think that's a lot different now. It's much more of a mutualist um, way of thinking where uh, a lot of folks now in Colorado don't necessarily see the need to participate in hunting in particular, and in some cases fishing. Um, and they're more, they're, they're, their philosophy or their value system is more along the lines of, um, I'd say, having animals as companions are on the same level as humans. And because of that, you know, that, that presents us with some unique challenges as an agency, um, specifically because we do have a lot of folks that still hunt and fish, but there are fewer and fewer of those every year. Um, particularly hunters. And so us being or remaining relevant in these changing times as a conservation agency is very challenging. Heather, it strikes me that in Colorado, and, and I can't speak for states across the West, but it seems like from an outside perspective that Colorado is really at, I don't know if tipping point's the right word, but there's a lot more users of these lands than there are people paying for them, right? For their creation and maintenance and everything that happens on them, even down to um, like officer salaries. So can you talk a little bit about how you have been navigating that or how you see that playing out in Colorado specifically? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, it's funny that you say this because we have an act that passed just last year. It's called the Keep Colorado Wild Act. And really what it, it, it does a few different things. First of all, it, it refocuses on 
where we get funding to manage our state parks and then also to take care of some of the other natural resources uh, complexities or initiatives that we need to take care of in the future. So essentially, if you register a vehicle in Colorado now, then you can opt to pay $29 and that covers um, park entry for you for all of Colorado's state parks, but it also does a lot more. Um, after a threshold is met for, to make the state park system sustainable, then the, the next chunk of money goes to um, backcountry search and rescue efforts and just supporting our backcountry search and rescue volunteers. And there's also a chunk of money that goes to the Colorado Avalanche Information Center because we get more and more people in the backcountry every year. And so we need to be, be able to provide those services to folks. Um, what's interesting is that any spillover of money after that will go to really important initiatives. Um, it will be split between parks cash and wildlife cash. And some of the examples that of uh, initiatives that we may use this for is like updating our state wildlife action plan um, to include um, more funding for things that we haven't been able to in the past. Did that answer your question? Yeah, it did. And that's really interesting. I think, you know, I, I had a conversation with one of my, actually one of my lab mates from grad school, he moved out to the West following the completion of his master's degree with me in Mississippi. And we were having this conversation about funding for wildlife and how, you know, under our current national model, hunters and anglers pay for most of that through license fees and other things. Um, and he, he was talking about how, you know, we don't want other users to be paying for the management and protection of these lands because then they're going to have a louder voice and potentially we could experience, you know, blowback and pushback and maybe our hunting and angling capacity might be diminished. And that's something that, I mean, this is like maybe a year ago that I had this conversation with him and it's really stuck in my mind. And I'm, I'm curious how, I guess back to this kind of the same question I asked, how do you, how do you see navigating that? Especially as a, a wildlife agency who, I don't know them, um, if it's a constitutional right in Colorado to hunt and fish like it is in some other States, but that was a ramble. <laughs> comment as you see fit. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting that you had that conversation a year ago, and I think there have been conversations like that going on. And, you know, that speaks to really a fear of loss, doesn't it? Um, and your friend said out loud what I suspect a lot of people are thinking, because there's that intrinsic value in being in the outdoors and having the space to yourself and you know that solitude is part of what draws all of us to it and so that fear of having crowding you know in in wilderness areas or just on public lands i i totally understand where he's coming from on the other hand and maybe it's on the same hand but the flip side you know, I think one of the things that makes our state so great is that we have such an active outdoor lifestyle. And I think it's so important for, for the future of the state, for all Coloradans and all visitors to Colorado to really appreciate what that connection with the 
outside, that connection with nature is. And so while I understand your friend's concern, I think it's also, I think it's, it's important for all of us to really encourage everybody to appreciate, appreciate the outdoors. And that's not to say that everybody's going to go to, you know, um, not everyone's going to go up on the Grand Mesa. I mean, even having folks appreciate what's in their backyard or some of the smaller um, open spaces. I, I just think that's so important. And that's what I want when I talk to friends, that's really what I try to emphasize. That makes sense. I think, I think even more than crowding, he was alluding to advocacy or opposition like around hunting and angling rights. I think hunting is typically more contentious in the public eye. And so like you had mentioned earlier, there's a lot of users that maybe don't participate in hunting directly and have a a positive or negative or maybe neutral view of it. Um, But having, I guess, those voices potentially restricting um, the types of hunting we can do or, you know, season, you name it. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I can see that. And, you know, I'm going to speak now as an adult onset hunter. So I would go on hunting trips with my dad and my uncles when I was a kid. But by the time I was a teenager and a young adult, you know, going through school and then raising a family, I just didn't feel like I had the time to hunt. I was never anti-hunting, but it wasn't until about 10 years ago that I really took up the sport. And I think it's up to us to message what hunting really is all about. It's not about, it's not about the trophy. It's about feeding your family high quality protein and also having your family participate in what the experience looks like in, in getting that protein and in, in getting that nourishment for your family. And so in recent years, I've taken my two sons on different hunting trips where they've harvested animals. And just there's something profound about that. There's something deeply spiritual. And I think it's changed my son's lives. And so I think as an agency, we need to do as much as we can to help people in that experience. I couldn't have said it better myself. I think that's, Carly, I don't want to speak for you, but I feel like that's really at the core of Artemis as well. And all of the members of our community is to try to portray truthfully and accurately and meaningfully what hunting, angling, and trapping is to us. Yeah. Yes, I and, you know, it's, it's, it's so funny because it's it's not about necessarily harvesting an animal. I mean, that's, that's a bonus and that's important, but it's that, like I said, I'm going to go back to this, that connection with nature that is so profound and changes the way you look at things, the way you live your life. Um, it's just, it's just spiritually uplifting. Heather, in reflecting on your first hunt as an adult, um, what was some of the, what were some of the most notable I guess, experiential learning opportunities that you had? (laughs) Okay, so um, my first 
adult hunt was with two of my girlfriends and we decided that we were going to go turkey hunting and we had basically zero experience and so we set up some decoys in the morning we were not successful and so later in the morning because we didn't have experienced people with us we decided we were going to stalk turkeys we quickly learned that that is really not an effective way of turkey hunting. Um, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. So it's a little bit of trial and error. So once we calmed down and, you know, did what we were supposed to do, um, we actually were able to draw a tom in. And that was the first um, game species that I ever harvested. And there was just something so... Um, I can think of it right now, but I can't put it in words because it, it comes from your gut. It comes from your heart. And I was so proud of myself and I was thankful um, that I was successful. Um, I was emotional um, taking the life of, of another being. Um, and I just remember, and this is where in subsequent years and hunting with my sons, I remembered this because when they harvested their first animals, I could kind of guide them through this. But I felt like I, you know, I, I just, I, I went up to the turkey, I said a little prayer, and then I also thanked the turkey for giving its life for me and for nourishment, and it was just such an experience. Like, as I'm describing it right now, I can, I mean, I can see the sunlight, I can see my friends, I can see the iridescent feathers of the turkey, and, um, you know, I'm actually looking at the turkey fan right now, I have it in my office, and that was just a that was a turning point for me and it really helped me to understand the deep meaning of hunting. That was beautifully said. I, I would like to just revisit the fact that you and a fellow novice went out <laughs> on your first ever <laughs> hunt, first turkey hunt and har harvested a ton. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. I think God was looking out for me that day for sure. <laughs> Did you get it at the beginning of the season, Heather, or was it closer to the end of the season after several days of um, learning that turkeys don't like to be pursued? It was at the beginning of the season, and luckily it was on private land, so there was a lot less hunting pressure, so I think that really played in our favor also. Okay, and with that, we're going to take a quick break from our partners. Proas believes women hunt hard and deserve the gear to support their hunting and outdoor passions. What sets Proas apart is our belief that women require performance outdoor gear for all of their hunting and field pursuits. Their layering systems are quite technical but philosophically simple. Optimal base layers, prime insulation layers, and durable shell layers to stop wind and water. Take pride in not being one of the guys. And we're back again with Heather Disney Dugan, um, the acting director of Colorado Parks and Wildlife. And um, I suppose we can continue. So Heather, you, you just recently talked about your first hunt and can you elaborate a little bit more about um, maybe bringing other late onset hunters into the game? What things, what recommendations would you have for them? I would say one of the most important things is to have an experienced mentor um, I think our turkey hunt may have been a little less 
adventurous if we had had somebody with us who was um, experienced in turkey hunting. Um, having said that, though, my first big game hunt, I did have a handful of mentors and guides, um, folks that were really excited to help me in harvesting my first deer. So I'd say the first thing is, is have the support system. Um, and we really try as an agency to provide that for folks that don't come up from a hunting background. But that that's the key because it can be just the thought of everything that you have to remember can just be so overwhelming. So I'll stop there. I think that's the big thing. Thanks. And uh, really quick, I'd like to put in a quick plug for our turkey tactics that we've previously published. Definitely check that out on uh, Ashley. Those are podcasts. Is that right? Uh, yeah, we have a podcast. I guess there's webinars that we could make into podcasts. Maybe we'll have to <laughs> explore doing that. That also sounds like an Artemis event is waiting to happen. So find your mentors through Artemis. Um, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Happy to hear that. All right, Heather, um, kind of redirecting back to uh, Colorado Parks and Wildlife, what things are is CPW doing in the R3 world um, for maybe women in particular? You know, very much on a local and regional level, we have um, classes and programs that we really try to reach out to women and non-traditional hunting groups and We've got a novice hunter program where for an entire year, a DWM will um, spend time with somebody who has never hunted before and their and or their family. And it just takes the program takes them through, you know, what you have to do, what you need to know, um, how to prepare, what equipment you need, um, what to expect on your first hunt and all the way through to harvesting an animal to preparing it for the table. And so we do a lot of that and try to reach out to folks. That's very cool. Um, is that program unique to Colorado? I don't think it is. I think there are other agencies in the, in the United States that do that, but we certainly try to take it to the next level. And I know some of the first efforts came from Colorado. Very neat. Um, I know Colorado has a couple other, uh, or they're a notable program uh, in the realm of parks and wildlife. Um, can you talk about a couple of other programs that uh, Colorado is a leader in? Sure, I mean, we are a leader in a lot of different areas in terms of conservation management. But one, one area that I'd really like to highlight is our robust research program. So in addition to managing wildlife in the state and just keeping it at status quo or, you know, making management improvements. We also have a research team up uh, north and west of Fort Collins, and they are cutting edge in um, doing research related specifically to species that are found in Colorado. That's one of those little known facts that people just generally aren't aware of. Ashley, were you familiar with that research center in, in your, during your master's? I don't think so. I mean, I worked for CPW, I think probably the 
year that its name changed. I think it was in 2011, um, or maybe the summer of 2012. And I know, I didn't know that. yeah, fun <laughs> fact. Um, I was on a mule deer fawn crew looking at uh, survive survival of fawns between um, areas that had oil and gas development, areas that didn't. And so I knew. Oh wow! Yeah, that was that was quite an experience. But I so I knew that there's uh, a lot of staff that were involved in research, like R1, sure enough, research in conjunction with um, universities and stuff. But that's really cool. So where were you, Ashley, for your uh, summer? Were you up on the Uncompahgre un- 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 Plateau? Uh, I was. We were based out of Meeker. So Little Hills okay. W Little Hills was our like headquarters, but we lived in a camper on uh, Lake Avery. So there was no running water. I think we had a generator, so sometimes there's electricity, but our camper was just like infested with mice. One night I slept out on the ground to get away from the mice and got fire ants <laughs> in my sleeping bag. Um that was a yeah, that was an incredible summer. There was a lot of interesting and fun things that I got to experience. That sounds so fun, fire ants notwithstanding. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> Very cool. Um, Heather, I know you told us about your first hunting experience. Do you have any other really notable experiences that you've had in the field since you've spent so much time out there? You know, I can talk on a personal level, first of all, and I kind of alluded to this, but um each of my son's first hunts were very profound. Um, I took my older son, Rafe, deer hunting, and this was five years ago now. So it was the first year that he could big game hunt. And um, so I, I think I kind of ruined him on hunting because his very first harvest was this beautiful buck. And it was such an amazing experience. And he, I could see in his eyes, everything that I had gone through for my first successful hunt. And I was so proud of him. And uh, I have a funny little story because my daughter, although she doesn't hunt, she is an avid carnivore. And so she appreciates anything that we bring home from the field. And so I just remember um, sitting down to dinner the first night after we um, harvested the animal, uh, harvested the deer, butchered it and everything. And my dad helped us to butcher it. So it was definitely a family affair. But we were sitting down to dinner and my son Rafe perceived that Tessa was not eating everything that she should be eating that he had harvested. So he gave her a lecture on how much it takes to go out and harvest an animal and that she should appreciate what her brother had done for her. So that's kind of a little family joke now. But, um, you know, I guess to get back to my younger son's first hunting experience, it was also turkey hunting. And we actually did have a mentor who could turkey call way better than I can. And so I just remember how excited Jackson was to harvest his first animal. And and I, I remember telling him, it's okay, pull the trigger only if you feel like you're ready. And you know, it's okay if you don't want to or whatever. And uh, he had no hesitation, but he ended up feeling the same way about his harvest that Rafe did. And so that was just so gratifying. And um, it's just, it creates such family memories. I don't know if that answered your question. I just went off on my tangent about being in the field. 
No, I love it. And I love the dinner table story. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's great to um, maybe realize, right. The, the actual amount of work and effort that it takes to um, definitely harvest an animal. Ashley and I were talking about that this morning um, before this podcast, in fact. So um, Ashley, do you have anything else that you'd like to ask Heather? Yeah, Heather, I, I wanted to kind of circle back on your career trajectory and Really, I'm curious to know more about what kind of mentors you had, whether they were women or men or um, any combination of the two and, and kind of how that shaped your journey. Because we're talking to you here, like very casual, like just talking about your first time hunting experiences. But you are one of I mean, there's basically one of you in every state and that's it. So <laughs> I just want to kind of get back to to that and learn more about how that went for you. Oh my gosh, we could talk for days about this. And to answer your first question, the majority of my, well, all of my first mentors were men because there really weren't women in the field. And so, you know, I think it's my job now as a person in the position that I'm in to encourage and coach and mentor young women to come into our field. But I want to go back to when I was 18. I'm, I'm so thankful for the first ranger who hired me and the first DWM, the first district wildlife manager who took me on multiple ride-alongs to do all sorts of different things. You know, they really, they were instrumental in opening doors for me so that I could pass through to do the work to thrive in this career. So I, that's just a huge acknowledgement. And I also want to thank the men and women who made room for somebody who came in from you know, a unique perspective and unique experiences and allowed me to make my way in this agency. I will say that, you know, there have been positive and negative things that have shaped who I am and I can choose to do with those experiences what I want. I just feel very strongly that um, the more different voices and perspectives that we can bring in to this agency, the better off we're going to be, especially if it reflects what our population in Colorado looks like. Um, it just makes us stronger. And there's one thing that I try to tell people when they're brand new, um, you know, it, it's hard to be patient, especially when you're younger, because you want to save the world and you, you want to make all these changes right away. But one thing that my experience in 31 years has been is that a degree of change in time can result in a monumental arc of change over time. So do the little things, the day-to-day -day things, and over time you'll see the difference that they can make. Oh, that was so well said. Thank you so much for sharing that. Mm -hmm. I have one other was... thing. Go ahead, Ashley. Well, it's this is kind of like a, an aside. So if what you were going to say is, in lot, is a follow-up. Maybe we should go with that first. No, let's take a detour. Okay. We mm -hmm. always ask guests about their favorite moments in the field or on the water. And I am married to a conservation officer. He's actually, he's a manager. It's, it's a hybrid model here in Tennessee, like in Colorado. But anyway, I'm curious what one of your favorite or craziest stories um, from the field in that capacity, if you, if you would want to share. Oh, it's so funny because, you know, 
it, it it's not exciting necessarily, but there have been so many of those moments over the course of my career that it's hard to pinpoint just one from sunrises at 11 mile and seeing the sunlight shining through the crystals that are hanging frozen from evergreen trees or ponderosas to um, watching a kiddo catch his first fish to being on boat patrol at night and smelling the campfires and just appreciating the lap of waves against your boat as you sit quietly to being out in the middle of a forest and just having complete solitude. I mean, there's, I, I'm, I'm one of the luckiest people in the world to be able to have had this number of experiences like that and get paid for it. So, um, yeah, I think I'd like to just leave it at that because it is just part of my life and what I do, and I am so lucky. Very cool. Very, very cool. Thanks, Heather. Um, I, Ashley, did you have any last questions? No, I think, I mean, yeah, we could talk for... <laughs> for days but for, for podcast purposes i think i'm good okay and heather did you have anything that you wanted to um talk more about i don't think so thank okay. you for having me on i really appreciate this yes of course we're very happy to have you so our weekly clo closer is hits and misses um and so what have you been aiming for heather and how did it go well that's to be determined um, I am aiming for being director of this agency, and I am in the selection process right now. So send uh, good thoughts my way if you could. I sure would appreciate that. And uh, regardless of whether I become full-time director or not, it can't not be anything but a hit because of my fortune in being a member of Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Best of luck. I'm very excited for you and I'm, I'm excited to uh, follow up with you in a couple months to see how this, yeah, what, who they selected as a director and I'm hoping that it's you. Well, thank you. Of course. All right, Ashley, it's your turn for hits and misses. Gosh, normally I'm prepped for this, but I'm sitting over here scrambling through all of these things that are not yet resolved. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I mean, uh, on Saturday, I'm going to start seeds for my garden, which I've been looking forward to for months and months. Um, and along with a number of other things, but I think right now, this past weekend, I was actually able to sit down and spend some time proofing and putting together what will hopefully be the final draft of a manuscript I'm trying to publish from my master's work, looking at um, how hunting risk impacts um, adult male white-tailed deer movements. Um, so TBD, but I sat down to work on it <laughs> and it seems like it might be close. So I'm going to count that as a hit. Before That's we continue. Awesome. Yeah. Can you give us a little bit more information? What did you find? Oh gosh. Okay. It depends of course. Um, but basically we looked at, so I used something called a hidden Markov model which I don't even fully understand enough to describe to you very well. But basically we had GPS collars on deer and we also had hunters 
write down where they were hunting and when. So we had these two data sets that we can pair to look at. Basically what the model allowed me to do was to look at if a deer is this close to a hunter in space and time. Um, So for example, maybe at this moment, the deer, the caller takes a location and this particular deer is 300 yards away from a stand that was hunted 12 hours prior. Okay, so we have thousands and thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of those data points, and we feed them all into the model, and it spits out basically tracks. So it categorizes behavior for the deer, and basically there's two states, so transit or encamped movement. So either the deer is moving in a relatively straight line pretty fast, or they're just kind of like sitting there in one spot. And so from there, we were able to say, all right, Based on the proximity to risk to a hunter, a deer is X likely to go from being bedded down and camped to transit, which is like kind of getting the heck out of Dodge. And in our study area with our animals and our hunters, we found that the, I want to say this very carefully, the spatiotemporal proximity to risk. So how close a deer was to a hunter in space and time not impact the probability that it would change from one behavioral state to another. So that's going to be hard for a lot of hunters to swallow. Um, but I, I have, I have ideas around why that was our finding. And I think that in different systems, there may be a very different finding, um, based on other factors like vegetative cover, food availability, the level of hunting pressure, et cetera. Ashley, for our listeners, can we take this out of the academic realm and put it into the vernacular? Yeah. So if you have a lot of food on the landscape and a lot of cover and not very many hunters, deer don't really give a crap. (laughs) They don't alter their behavior. (laughs) Perfect. Thank you. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, good luck getting that published. Um, I'm going to go ahead and piggyback on your uh, in-progress planting. I am still trying to transition my backyard into native plants for Colorado for a little water conservation. Um, and so to be determined on whether I keep them alive, which is highly unlikely. So anyway, um, thank you again for joining us, Heather. Um, we're really happy to have you on the Artemis podcast. Um, and I think that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us this week on the Artemis podcast. We hope you're having a great week. Until next time, be bold, stay curious, and get outside. Get outside.